Take your Bible with me this morning. We're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews 8 is where we'll be this morning. That song says that we must draw near with confidence, assured of your unfailing love. I love, I love this song, and it really correlates very well uh, with our message this morning. And really, the, the theme of the book of Hebrews, uh, one of the main themes of the book of Hebrews is that we are, because of who we are in Christ, because of our great high priest, as we'll talk about this morning some, uh, we can now draw near. We can draw near to God through Christ because we have that great high priest. It says, I stand by grace complete, made faultless. I mean, none of us are faultless. (laughs) We're not faultless at all, but we are faultless because of what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, that he made him, that he, God, made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And that is... That is the truth that we are celebrating this morning. It's the truth that that song is celebrating. And we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 8. Uh, let's look at the first five verses together this morning, and then I will, I will pray. Hebrews chapter 8 says, Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle or the tent. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. Let's pray together and we'll begin this morning. Our Father, we are once again grateful for your love for us, and we thank you for the chance that we have to look into your word this morning. God, I pray that as I speak, that your Holy Spirit would anoint my lips. I pray that I would say nothing your word does not say. I would say nothing that, you're, that you would not have for me to say here this morning. God, I ask that you would, again, meet with us here in this place. I pray that this message would be an encouragement to all who hear. Father, that you would give us uh, ears to hear, but also that we would obey. Father, we would not just be hearers of the word, but we would also be doers as well. We pray all these things in your precious son's name. Amen. How many of you have ever been to New York City? I see raise of hands. Couple, okay, good number of you. M- many of you have been to New York City. Um, I've been there uh, a couple times. I think I've been there two or three times. Uh, I grew up in Allentown, Pennsylvania, which is in the Lehigh Valley area uh, near Philadelphia on that, that side of the state. And so we were pretty close to, uh, pretty close to New York City. And so I went as a, few, a few times as a child. I've, I haven't been in many years. Um, I did go uh, once, I believe, before 9-11. And I remember seeing, we went and saw the Statue of Liberty. I remember looking across the harbor and seeing the two towers and uh, then, of course, you know, on, on 9-11, when everything was transpiring, and like everyone else, we were watching in horror and, and seeing those towers fall. And I remember I just I couldn't get that image of seeing that uh, out, of my, out of my mind. And, um, you know, we were only an hour and a half or so, maybe two hours from New York City. So it wasn't, wasn't very far away. Uh, but I, I remember going once before 9-11, and I remember also going one time uh, after 
9-11. I think the first time I went, I was probably around uh, 12 years old. It was probably uh, the, late, the late 90s. And I remember going to Battery Park. And in Battery Park, there were these guys who would walk around uh, in Battery Park. And they had these uh, vests on, right? Or they had briefcases. And, and a lot of them, and they, they, there would be a number of these guys. And, and as a child, I remember thinking, oh, this is kind of cool. These guys, they walk around and they, and they sell stuff, right? You guys know what I'm talking about, right? People that sell stuff out of their briefcases and stuff in New York City, and, and maybe you've, uh, you, you probably haven't, maybe you've actually bought something from one of these people. Again, most of you, I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, uh, gonna to say, are probably smart enough not to buy something from those guys. Um, but as a 12-year-old, uh, visiting Battery Park, being in New York City, probably for the very first time, um, you know, at this point in my life, I had probably uh, heard of fossil watches. Have you all, you all know what a fossil watch is, right? Okay, you've seen these very nice watches. I mean, it's not like, uh, the, you know, it's not, it's not a Rolex, okay? <laughs> but it's a, it's a reasonably nice watch, and I, a real fossil watch probably costs, I, I don't know, 70 or $80 or something like that. But as a 12-year-old, that's a lot of money. Well, these guys in Battery Park, they sell fossil watches for like five bucks, okay? <laughs> it's a great deal, all right? And, and, and I, I, I assume, I know we had, I, I wasn't... I wasn't there by myself, okay? No, I know that. I don't remember who all was with us, but, but whoever was, was our chaperones, uh, who were, whoever were our chaperones for the, the trip uh, didn't, didn't mention to me the fact that, you know, hey, Drew, that, that's probably not a real fossil watch, okay? I thought, hey, wow. I mean, I'm getting a fantastic deal. Again, as a, as a very uh, naive 12-year-old, I'm thinking, wow, this is a great deal. This guy must have an inside scoop on how to get, you know, cheap fossil watches. I mean, he gets them imported from overseas or something. And I mean, I was, I was proud of this thing, okay? I, I, it was a green face. I remember it. It, it was it very nice. It said fossil right on it. Now, at this point in my life, I understand. I had never seen a real fossil watch, okay? I didn't know what a real, I didn't know what the fossil logo looked like. And, um, and so, I, again, obviously most of you already know, and I think I've already said, that this watch that I bought was, was definitely not a real fossil watch. And I very clearly remember walking down our basement steps a few, a week or two weeks later perhaps, and the thing literally falling apart on my wrist, okay? The face of it just coming off, and, and me just being so disappointed and, 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 and really at that time thinking, I wish, I wish someone would have told me. I wish that someone would have explained to me and I was thinking, man, this guy, he would never do that. He, no, no decent person is going to sell a, an innocent kid a, a, a watch that says fossil on it, but it's not an actual fossil watch. Um, and I'm sure he was just trying to make a living. I don't know where that guy is. I've lost contact with him. But, uh, you know, uh, I was really disappointed as a 12-year-old kid. I really, truly was. Um, you know, the title of our message this morning is The Real Deal. You know, that watch, it was obviously not real. And, you know, sometime after that, I, I saw a real fossil watch. And I think I've even maybe owned one since then. I'm not sure. And I'm sure that, as you can guess... It was a whole lot different than the watch I bought in Battery Park. Uh, in fact, the logo on the fake one was not even close. It was, they didn't even try. It just—it was like someone almost, they might as well have just taken a Sharpie and written fossil on it. Um, and I'm not saying this morning that when what, what we're doing here this morning, that we're, um, please don't hear me saying that I think we're playing church or anything like that, but we talk about the, the real deal I think that many believers fail to recognize the reality 
of their standing before God. We've read this passage already this morning. Uh, parts of it we've, we've read twice. And what I believe this passage is teaching us this morning is that we have an actual, real advocate, not a fake one, not a substitutionary one, but we have an actual, real-life advocate with the Father, Jesus, the Son of God. He is actually seated at the right hand of the Father, ministering on our behalf at this very moment. I want us to think about that this morning. I want us to, be, to, to come face to face with the reality of our standing. If you're a believer here this morning, of your standing before God. I think oftentimes we, we, we miss this. It's not as if we think our religion is fake. It's not as if we, we don't believe what we're saying. But we don't come to grips with the reality of what we have. We don't dwell on it. We don't meditate it on enough. And that's what I'd like for us to do this morning. In verses 1 and 2, the author of Hebrews tells us that we have a, a high priest who's not a fake. He's not a shadow of something that's to come. He is the minister, as it says in verse 2, the minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. He is the minister of the real deal sanctuary, the real place. Not something that was constructed as a representation as the tabernacle was, but he is a minister of the true tabernacle. Up until this point, the author has well established, up to this point in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews has well established that Jesus is our great high priest. And from this point through, really, chapter 10, he's going to focus on how Jesus carries out that high, that high priestly ministry. The author of Hebrews spends a lot of time talking about how great Jesus is. And how much better he is. The word better is a word that should come to mind for us when we think about the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than anything that came before him. And he's better than anything that's ever going to come after him. He's the real deal. He is what everything before him was looking towards. What everything before him was pointing to. Where we're going to start this morning is that Jesus is the minister of a better tabernacle. We read it already in verses 1 through 5. He's the minister of a better tabernacle. He, first of all, he says, now this is the main point. I'm not saying, I don't believe that this is the, he's not saying this is the, the summary of the book or anything like that. This is the main point of, of, of the book. But I think he's really saying that this is the main idea of what he's saying right here. The main idea of what he's saying right here is that Jesus is our, our great high priest. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, which he had just finished describing in chapter 7. He's greater than the high priesthood of Aaron. And we have this high priest. And we see, first of all, that he is a seated minister. He's seated. He says, look at, look at verse 1. He says, who is seated at the right, right hand of the throne of the majesty in the, in the heavens. Three times in this book, actually, it's referenced that Jesus is seated. We see that in Hebrews 1, 3. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had himself purged our sins, he did what? What did he do? He sat down. Why? His work was finished. Chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, it again says that he sat down. And then in verse, uh, verse 2 of chapter 12, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he, he did what? He endured the cross, he despised the shame, and he did what? Say it with me. He sat down. 
He said, that's it. It's done. The work was complete. The Greek word that Jesus said, when, when we, when the last words that Jesus said on the cross in our, English word, in our English translation is translated something along the lines of, it is finished. It's done. And the word there is actually just one word. It's the word tetelestai. And what that means is that it's paid in full. That is a word that you will find on documents uh, from this time period on invoices. People that owed a debt. And people would stamp that word on, on that piece of paper, on that invoice saying, Wow, that's not as loud as I thought it was going to be. That's still not very loud, John. Sorry. It's done. It's paid in full. It's finished. There is nothing left to pay. And so Jesus, he, did, he does what? He, he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. We have an interesting development, though, in Acts chapter 7. We have the martyrdom of Stephen. Look at this with me. Uh, let's see, where did it go? Did I lose it? Maybe I don't have it in there. There it is, sorry. Acts chapter 7, he being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing. Jesus is now standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Jesus, Stephen is speaking here and he's, he's, as he is dying, he is gazing up to heaven and he, see, he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Now, why would our author, the author of the book of Hebrews, say that Christ is seated, but Stephen would see him standing? And, of course, we don't really know the answer to that. We can't be sure. But I think it's possible that Jesus, as Stephen is, being, as, is dying, he is standing to, to receive Stephen into heaven. Perhaps he's standing as he ministers to, Steve, to Stephen in his time of greatest need. We really don't know, but it emphasizes our next point in that Jesus is not just a seated minister. He is a serving minister. In verse 2, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. He is, he, he is seated, but don't mistake the fact that he's seated for inactivity. Don't think that just because he is seated at the right hand of the Father that he's not doing anything. The very fact that he is here referred to as a minister and is constantly being compared to the high priests of the Old Testament, the high priests of the tabernacle, tell us that he is active. He is serving. He is our advocate. He is interceding on our behalf. He is busy. He is working. The work of atonement is done, yes, but he is still serving. And where is he serving? It tells us in the true tabernacle. He's the minister of a better tabernacle, of the true tabernacle. It says that Jesus is a shadow of what is to come. The, the author of the book of Hebrews uses that word. He's a shadow. In Hebrews chapter 9, according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. The copies of the things in the heavens. What is he referring to? He's referring to the tabernacle. He's referring to the earthly sanctuary that we had here on this earth in the Old Testament that they would offer sacrifices in. The earthly tabernacle are copies of things in the heavens. Verse 24, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands. He didn't enter the tabernacle. He didn't go into the holy of holies, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, into the real sanctuary, 
the real, the true tabernacle now to appear in the presence of God for us. He is a minister of that better tabernacle. This passage would indicate that there is an actual tabernacle in heaven. I don't don't know if everybody takes it this way, but to me it indicates that there is an actual tabernacle in heaven that the earthly tabernacle represented. So he's a seated minister, he's a serving minister, but I also want us to see that he is a self sacrificing minister. And this is where Jesus is so, so different from the high priest of the Old Testament. I mean, he's different in every way, but he really distinguishes himself here. The high priests of the Old Testament, they were just the priest. They offered sacrifices, but the sacrifices were not their own. It was not themselves that they were sacrificing. He basically says in verse 3, a priest, he's got something to offer. So it's necessary that our great high priest also have something to offer. And what did he offer? Himself. He was the perfect sacrifice. This is the remarkable thing about the sacrifice of Christ. He was not only the high priest, but he was also the sacrifice. That's why he says in chapter 7, verse 27, that I do, oh, look across the pages, right? It's just in the last chapter there. Who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up what? Himself. He is the great high priest, but he also offered himself. In verse 4 he says that if Jesus had been on earth, he wouldn't have been a priest. Why is that? If Jesus had walked on, when when Jesus walked on the earth, he wasn't a, 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 a Levitical high priest. Why? He wasn't from that line. Jesus Christ was from the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He, was not, he would not have even been fit by the Old Testament standards, by the Old Testament law, to be a high priest. He says in verse 4, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Verse 5, he quotes from Exodus chapter 25, verse 40. Moses was given very specific instructions on exactly how things could be done under the law. But the author of Hebrews is saying that these things are just a, a, a copy, just a shadow of the things that are to come. I don't know if you, perhaps as a child, you were afraid of the dark. Uh, maybe now you still are. I don't know. Uh, but if you are afraid of the dark, one of the things that is a little bit scary about being in the dark or that might scare a child in the dark is a shadow. A shadow perhaps moving something outside, perhaps a tree branch or something that, that casts a shadow on the window. Makes it look as if there's something moving outside. And then what happens in the morning? Uh, the light shines, the shadows are gone, and you realize it wasn't real. It wasn't a real thing. It was just a representation. Um, And that is exactly what we have in the Old Testament Levitical system. It was a shadow. It wasn't the real thing. It was a shadow of what was to come. Back in the book of Exodus, we have the law and the covenant that God made with Moses and with the children of Israel. And the the covenant was uh, a covenant of law. It was a covenant of rules. And this was known as the Old Covenant. God chose the people of Israel... He made a covenant or a promise with those people. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. That is the covenant that God made with these people. And as great as that covenant between God and the children of Israel was, there is now a 
better covenant. We see that here starting in verse 6, that Jesus is the minister of not only a better tabernacle, but also of a better covenant. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, with that covenant, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. And this is a quote directly from Jeremiah chapter 31. You're probably familiar with these verses. This is a prophecy of the new covenant that would come. Jeremiah 31 and and, and verses 31 through 34, it's found here in verse 8. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant, the the new covenant, that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins And their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Several times in the book of Hebrews we have reference to Jesus as the mediator of a new covenant. We have this in chapter 9 verse 15 as well as chapter 12 verse 24. To Jesus the mediator of a new covenant. He is the mediator not just of a new covenant but also of a better covenant. And we are the beneficiaries of that covenant. That is the good news that we have this morning, that we are the beneficiaries of this new covenant, a covenant that, G- that God has made with his people, with the people of Israel, but that we are the beneficiaries of. Uh, growing up, we would shop at places like uh, Aldi, uh, where they have their own brand of cookies, and they have their own brands of, of basically everything. And these days... Aldi brands are, are pretty good. And, of course, now that I'm buying the groceries, we really like to shop at Aldi. Uh, places like that where you can get store brand stuff. But as a child, I really couldn't quite understand why, you know, as, as you know, we would go to the store, I was always asking my mom, you know, can we, can we get the real thing? Like, uh, take cookies, for example. Uh, you have Oreos, right? That's, I don't know, they say they're America's favorite cookie or something like that. Uh, but that, that's, that's a good cookie, right? I mean, Oreos are, are probably my favorite cookie. And, uh, but every store in the country has their version of Oreo, right? And as a child, I remember just thinking, can we just get, can we get the, the real Oreos? And I want you to think about this and just kind of play this out in your mind for a second. Um, let's say that uh, you, you meet somebody and, and they have spent their entire life uh, in this difficult place where they only eat off-brand Oreos, okay? They never in their entire life have eaten a real Oreo, a double stuff, okay? Let's, obviously. Um, You know, they've eaten the the twist and shout, okay, Oreos from uh, Walmart. That's what that's what their brand is called. They they have they don't have Oreos. They have Twist and Shout. And I don't know what we're twisting or shouting about because uh, <laughs> they're just not as good. But um, and you shouldn't shout with your mouth full as well. That's not a good idea. Um, you might choke. But uh, you know they have uh, Twist and Shouts or assorted creams or whatever. And they've spent their entire life eating off-brand Oreos. Very sad. Um, 
And maybe you're, maybe you're, let's pretend all of us are, you're, you're dating somebody like this, okay? You're, you've met somebody like this and you're dating somebody like this. What are you going to do? When you learn this interesting fact about them, that they have never had a real Oreo, I mean, is your first date not going to be to the grocery store to get them a real, actual Oreo? The real thing. Because it just doesn't compare, at least in, in, my, in my humble opinion. You're going to introduce them to the real thing. This thing that everybody else is trying to imitate. Everybody else is trying to be this thing. This name brand Oreo. Everybody else is shooting for that. But the real deal is, is way better. It's, it's so much better. And, and that is the, the, the point that the author of Hebrews here is, is making. He's saying, look, this is what everything up to this point has been leading to. This is what we've been waiting for. The author of Hebrews, remember, is writing to Jewish people. It's the book to the Hebrews. He's writing to Jewish people who have, who have come out from under the Old Testament law. Jesus has died. He's been buried. He's risen again. He's ascended to the Father. He's now interceding at the right hand. The work has been done. And these are people who had been under the Old Testament law, who had been under the sacrificial system, who had spent their entire lives offering sacrifices, spilling blood. And the author of Hebrews is telling them, you don't have to do that anymore. It's done. The real thing has arrived. The work has been complete. And here's what, what comes along with that. And he, and he quotes these verses from Jeremiah chapter 31 about the new covenant. Jesus is said to have obtained a more excellent ministry. And, and the author of Hebrews has spilled a lot of ink discussing the fact that Jesus is greater than the earthly high priest. He spends an entire chapter earlier about, about that. He says that the new, the new covenant is established on better promises. What are these better promises? What is it about the new covenant that is so great? We'll see that here in just a moment. Here in verses 7 and 8 is where we really get the idea of the, the weakness of the old covenant, the weakness of the sacrificial system. He says, he uses the phrase, finding fault. With that old covenant. He says that if the old covenant was faultless, we wouldn't need another one. But we did. We did need another one. In chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, he says, For the one, on the one hand, there is an, an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law did what? It made nothing perfect. He's not saying that the law wasn't good. He's not saying that the law wasn't necessary. Indeed, it was. But he says the law made nothing perfect. On the one hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And again, that is in the new covenant through which we draw near to God. In saying all this, we are not in any way minimizing the importance of the law. Paul describes in Galatians 3.24, he, he says that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Through the law, we saw our need for a Savior. Another use of the Old Testament law is that it prepared the way for the sacrifice of Christ, for the blood of Christ to be spilled. It prepared the way and established a pattern of sacrifice. And the fact that blood would be necessary 
for atonement. So the, the new covenant was weak, but the new covenant promised great blessings. And again, this is from Jeremiah chapter 31. We won't read it again. Uh, but he says, look, this is what you've been waiting for. In, 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 when Jeremiah is saying these words, when Jeremiah is prophesying, he's saying that this is coming in the future. It will come one day. It will come as a new covenant with the people of Israel that we are all the beneficiaries of. A lot of these promises that are made may not sound very uh, new. In fact, they may sound similar to things that were enjoyed under the Old Covenant, but the promises are now being fully realized through Christ. What are these benefits of the New Covenant? An internal relationship. I'm sorry, that's so small. I hope you can see that. But an internal relationship. Rather than the law being written on tablets of stone, he says, I'm going to put the law where? In your hearts. The Old Testament believer was asked to internalize this as well, but they did so without the aid of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit did not indwell Old Testament saints in the way that the, the, the Holy Spirit indwells the New Testament believer. The New Testament believer has the benefit of the Holy Spirit living inside of them, of us. We, we enjoy that, and, it's, and it is now an internal relationship. It's also a personal relationship. The Old Covenant was a covenant relationship between God and a group of people with a nation, the nation of Israel. But now that's no longer the case. God certainly still does have a relationship with his chosen people. And we believe that the covenants and the promises that were made to the children of Israel will be fulfilled to Israel. But it's no longer just limited to that or primarily to that. Now the covenant is open to all. And we have an opportunity for a personal relationship. Man on God. Man with God. Not God with nation. But individually with God. It's personal. It's not a matter of just because your parents are saved or just because your nation is, has this kind of relationship with God. It's an individual thing. And all, again, all this is done through the benefits of the Holy Spirit. We have this prophesied, or Jesus is talking about this in John chapter 14. He says, these things I've spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. That is, Jesus Christ told us that he would leave us a helper. And of course, the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and has indwelled believers ever since. So it's an internal relationship, it's a personal relationship, but it's also, he promises forgiveness of sin. That, what is it that the Old Covenant absolutely could not do? In chapter 7, verse 19, we looked at it already, it says, the law made nothing Perfect. It could not forgive sin. Folks, praise God. We have actual, real forgiveness of sin. It's not a covering. It's not a shadow. It's not something that's looking towards a real forgiveness that would come one day. It's already been done. We can have actual, true forgiveness. He says, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Verse 13, in that he says, a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And indeed, the temple would be destroyed in AD 70, shortly after this was written. We believe this was written probably shortly before that time. 
Because it seems that sacrifices and offerings were still being offered when the author of Hebrews is writing. But it was very soon come to an end. We began this morning with the problem that many of us fail to recognize the reality of our standing with God. And we've talked at length this morning about the benefits that we enjoy. The benefits that he outlines here. The benefits of a personal relationship with God. Not just a national relationship with God. But a personal, internal, via the Holy Spirit relationship with God. And the benefit, of course, of actual real forgiveness of sins. We are no longer looking forward, looking toward the future for something that is to come. But we are looking back and enjoying the benefits of that sacrifice. But many of us fail to recognize that reality. We've forgotten that we're, we're not just playing church here today. Um, that this is the real deal. That he is a real savior. That he really did die for us. I mean, it's so easy to come to church and do the church thing. And we go home and, and, and we, do, we do our stuff, right? I mean, we, we come and, and we know this, okay, this is what we do. This is what we do on Sunday. We come and we, we enjoy fellowship and we see each other. But, but are we really truly recognizing what we have through Christ? We have a real Savior. He really did die for us. He's really still on the throne. God is really still on the throne. And, and Christ is really still seated at the right hand of the Father, actively interceding for, on your behalf right now, at this very moment. We still have that intercessor. Our great high priest, he has not been defeated. Let, let's live our lives this week like he has not been defeated. Like he is still at the right hand of the Father. Like we are still enjoying the benefits of the new covenant that we do enjoy. If we still have a, a real great high priest interceding on our behalf, then how much does it really matter these, these things that we get caught up with. How much does it really matter how, how well the economy is doing? Or what's going, what else is going on in the world? How much does it really matter whether your favorite team wins or not? And I don't know what, who you all cheer for around here, but I mean, really, at the end of the day, how much does that really... I mean, if we really truly believe that this is what we have... That the God of the universe, Almighty God, is, at, is, is still on the throne and that His Son is interceding on our behalf. Then, then what are these things that we get so worked up about really matter? And I don't know what it is for you. It might be something, you might be thinking of something else. That whatever it is that, that keeps you up at night. That, that you're, you're struggling with. If we indu- indeed have this real living great high priest, then, then, then the importance of all this other stuff, it fades in comparison. So I would challenge us this week uh, to live like that, to recognize, to perhaps even go back and, and read this passage again. Read the book of Hebrews. It's a wonderful book, and he describes in great detail how much better Christ is. He compares him to everything that these, these dear people that, that, that he is writing to that they had had before. He's saying he, he doesn't even compare. He is so, so much better. And we have him. He is, our, he is our Savior. If you're a believer here this morning, if you have trusted Christ for your salvation, 
and nothing else, then Jesus, that is what you have. You have him. You have Jesus Christ. You have the real deal. And you have him interceding as your great high priest right now. So I would, I would just ask that we would live lives that are reflective of that this week. That we would live like that. That is the most important thing. And that all these other things, they would fade in comparison. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for your word. And we thank you for this book that so clearly outlines the work of our Savior. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us in, this, in, in revealing this to us. We thank you that we have your complete word at our disposal that you, we can learn from it. God, I pray that this week we would be people of the word. Lord, that we would meditate and truly bask in how wonderful and how great you are. How great our sacrifice is, our, 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 our Savior who was both high priest and sacrifice, who offered himself on our behalf. I pray that we would meditate on that. And I pray that we would live our lives in light of that truth this week. We pray these things in your precious Son's name. Amen.